Hi, my name's Tim. And I'm Cassandra. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the European, European Soapbox. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the European defense community. More specifically, the failure of the European defense community. I'll let you start with the historicals. So post-World War II, the, econ the economy was booming, but things were looking very suspicious as far as the sphere of influence that the USSR might still have over European states. Um, because of that, arguably, the European states felt very vulnerable. Um, the communist that was becoming more real, but France was still iffy about Germany having troops if it came to that to defend themselves against the communist threat. Well, I mean, yeah, it's, it's nuts to think about nowadays. Like, there was literally this barrier between most of Germany. Like, there was a wall. Like, it's insane to think about. Like, the Iron Curtain separated Europe. Like, travel, if any, was, like, highly restricted. Right. And it's crazy with, to think about. With Germany having been the person to start both world wars, the thought of them being in between Western Europe and trying to protect them and the communist threat was a little iffy because it seemed like their economy or I guess their kind of social structure as a whole was still kind of being rebuilt. I, I would totally agree with that. Now, we do have to think about like the European um coal and steel community mm -hmm. has been established at this point right i i'm, I'm pretty sure so. it has so so just as a quick refresher to what that is it, it basically unites the coal and steel economies of essentially western europe benelux right. france germany west and, germany and part of it was to keep uh states from going to war with each other because it would be impossible to hurt other economies without hurting your own yeah and so now that we move on from this the idea was maybe th these the it wasn't called the European Union at some point, but it was sort of a defense mechanism. Like, do we collectively need an army uh, to defend ourselves from the Soviet threat? Because you also need to think about you have the popularity of NATO, mm -hmm. um, North Atlantic Treaty Association, which sort of also... Organization. Organi <laughs> so sorry. Um, it, it, which also sort of it plays against the Warsaw Pact. Mm -hmm. um, also, these, these sort of ideas of like we go to war like you're coming with us right and so this idea of well all right what exactly was the edc let's talk let's nail that down the edc seemed to be more of an idea than an actual like i guess established community um uh, so going back to what you were saying about possibly having a communal defense community um france was still very iffy about germany having troops because of like i said them having started both of those wars and um, so what was in the works was having a centralized organization that would have troops from each individual state and if there was an issue or problem in any state any country they would send those troops to go help mitigate or help in whatever way they could to make it easy let's call it the european army right i mean that is essentially what it was and it, it how that would work is, I don't know, six troops would come from Germany, two from Luxembourg, two from Belgium, two from the Netherlands, eight from France, and three from Italy or something like that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's just essentially everybody sends troops, 
to wherever they're meeting and they're going to go fight. Right, right, Okay, right. in this European army. Exactly, yeah. Great. So another, th- I guess going back to France, they were kind of the obstacle that prevented the EDC from being fully ratified. Um, in the end, when the treaty did become on the table, they outright said, no, we're not signing this. We think it's too dangerous for Germany to get troops, so this isn't happening. And part of that was because they were scared that if everybody got troops, they would lose their own freedoms and their freedoms is specifically to defend themselves against Germany. And I think this is really interesting um, because it plays into sovereignty mm-hmm. quite a lot. And, and sovereignty essentially is that um, want and ability, specifically the ability to do your own, like have your own army or be in charge of your own legislation or um, have your own rights to press or something like that. Like sovereignty is this essential separation of power from supranational to national from national to regional to regional to to count communal or something like that so sovereignty is it's a debated issue that we still talk about today a lot uh specifically it's, it's the european union overreaching on uh country sovereignty like how does a country sovereignty play into the european union and i think not just necessarily that motivation behind the, the threat of Germany, again, starting a third world war, or mm-hmm. somehow having a vendetta against France, this idea of sovereignty is really, it really sets a precedent here. Like, France doesn't want this. And right. I think that that's a really, really powerful statement, one, but a really interesting statement as well. Right. You would think that the country most, I guess, vulnerable to Germany would want something that would kind of prevent all of that. Um, Okay, so let's talk about who who are these sort of ideas? Where are these ideas coming from, from the European defense community? Right. So back on like a timeline kind of subject, in 1950, Winston Churchill was the one to propose the idea of said European army. Um, It would be a collective group um, for West European army in addition with German units. In 1952, the Treaty of Paris had an article, like just a little sentence in there saying, this is what would happen and laid out the groundwork for what the EDC would say. And these ideas were put forward by Robert Schumann and John Monet. Correct. Right, right, right. Um, in 1954, after years of deliberation and I guess trying to figure out the nuts and bolts, France ended up, like I said, saying straight up no. And followed by it, Italy also decided never to ratify it. I think they decided just not to vote on it. Oh. So after they saw that France rejected it, and at this point you needed to be unanimously right. for it, like all the countries had to agree. And after they saw France say no, Italy I was just sort of like, no, nah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, that makes sense. So one country that really supported it was the UK. Um, they really thought it would work in conjunction with NATO um, because NATO was kind of international, overseas kind of thing. The European army would, I guess, be a closer to home kind of NATO in a sense. Um, and they also helped offer to build it up, legitimize it, do whatever they could to really establish it. And sense. I mean, the UK really wanted this form of defense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, it really, um, it, it's it's very, very sort of important because they are a, a huge capul- capitalist country. Um, and so having this defense against some kind of... Um, some kind of protection against the Soviet Union and the rise of communism is, is very essential. Right. 
And after that, I guess the Treaty of Brussels was brought up in Germany, and that made Germany's entrance into the EU very official because, and one of the primary reasons for that was they were so willing and ready to cooperate with the EDC, despite everyone's wariness about them entering it. They were ready to put in troops and do whatever they could to not only help build up their own profile, but to kind of help the spread of communism decrease. Really something that the EDC, or I guess the failure of the EDC, demonstrates is the role of these four central countries in the European Union today. I mean, we sort of talk about sort of Italy's and France's opposition to the EDC, and we can see how this sort of develops in forms of Euroscepticism over time. These countries have been become a lot more Euro-friendly. Uh, they have developed far more welfare states. Um, and the UK, it always has been sort of like, we'll help. Right. But we don't necessarily want to be directly involved. <laughs> yeah. Whereas Germany, in comparison, they're like, we'll we do will whatever. do anything, like, yeah. It will be fully cooperative or... Nowadays, it's less so, but we'll like we'll f- we'll fully support this. We don't want to be bogged down by that history of the past, right? And so, in the end, the treaty was not ratified, or that particular segment of the treaty was not ratified because the Treaty of Paris was in fact ratified. Um, and bringing us to the present, while the EDC is no longer, I guess, on the table, we do have a European Defense Agency that was established in two thousand four. Um, instead of being a European army necessarily. It investigates different harmful technologies and pr- tries to protect the peace in Europe. They're not necessarily a military organization, but a platform on which to discuss security issues. Um, so like many of the other institutions we've talked about, acting as a facilitator to collaborate on projects and defense cooperation in Europe. And so it's really interesting to see how the EDA grows from the EDC. Mm-hmm. So like this development over, what is that, 50 years almost? Yeah. From this idea of we need a European army to protect against communism to we need a agency to cooperate on and have the prevention of violence, right. which I find very interesting. And also it, it adds a unique element to Europe that we haven't necessarily talked about, um, this idea of peace today i mean after world war ii of course everybody wants peace but peace today is very like how are we going to achieve this like this almost abstract topic at sometimes like yeah we're at peace because we're not at war but like this idea of like how, how do some of these agencies work to preserve this peace and i think it's very interesting to see how this develops from the edc originally right it's interesting to see the uh, i guess start of both of organizations in 19 19- 50 right after the war i mean every in everybody's mind was there's going to be a next war what are we going to do they're still rebuilding themselves both economically socially all of that but in 2004 like you said there had been peace in europe so almost in a more in a more mature mindset what can we do to continue this peace and prevent it from happening so i guess more preventative versus i guess reactionary that's perfect word reactionary all right i do have a a question for you that we can sort of end our discussion on what is your biggest takeaway from the failure of the edc i guess it would be what we just said trying to think of things in a more mature preventative way versus a reactionary way because a react as a reaction to whatever event might have just happened it's will change over time it's almost better to think in the future what could be and how can we continue that versus 
what just happened how can we immediately start to change if that makes sense i think that makes that makes very much sense um for me it's a different takeaway mm-hmm. i have to be honest here for me it's the i the, the the development of the conversation regarding sovereignty in a collective europe space interesting elaborate please <laughs> um so we we saw them with a lot of the institutions they require some kind of unanimous support mm-hmm. or majoritarian support or some kind of along those lines and the testing of france to say no i don't want this i want to keep this element of sovereignty is really interesting to me because nowadays we we have this discussion of sovereignty when it comes to sort of populist regimes at times in mm-hmm. europe whereas the the whole concept of sovereignty in general specifically with international and supranational organizations is it's quite pertinent and i think that this is a very interesting example where a country stands up on its hind legs and say no i'm preserving my sovereignty and i don't want this to be supranationalized and i i I've, think that's probably one of the for a political scientist and a bit of a theoretical nerd um the, probably the, the largest and most important takeaway i actually very much like that point <laughs> Well, if you'd like to let us know your thoughts, please, I don't know, reach out. And otherwise, we'll see you guys next week on the European Soapbox. The European Soapbox podcast reflects only the opinions of the authors and do not reflect the views of any affiliated and or mentioned organizations. We are students still in the learning process, so information should be taken with a grain of salt and not blindly accepted. The information is for informational purposes only and do not intend to serve as any recommendation. We do not intend to isolate anyone on this podcast and encourage diversity and differences in opinion. The European Soapbox stands independently from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. The authors are the sole owners of the rights to the European Soapbox podcast. As students, we ask for the opportunity to grow and improve in our podcasting journey and progression as individuals. If you'd like to reach out to us, send us an email at europeansoapbox at gmail.com. This podcast is hosted by Cassandra Alvarino and Tim Fry. All music is produced by Till Iringer. That's T-I-L-L-Y-D-E-A-N dot W-A-V on Instagram. A special thanks to our friends, families, and supporters.